Greetings, I am Nidhi, a family doctor. Having practiced in a variety of settings, different countries, rural and urban environments has given me the privilege of caring for many patients and sharing important moments of their lives. This podcast tells us of the lessons learned from these stories, the thoughts provoked, emotions generated, as well as a hope that I can create an understanding of actions and lead a path towards kindness. This episode is recorded by a guest speaker. October 2020, intern year, a fear of COVID. At 7 p.m., I open my apartment door to darkness. I turn on the light to see an old pile of mail and a stack of parking tickets on the table. My room floor is just littered with clothes I left in favor of washing the dishes last night. In two hours, I'll have to sleep to wake before the sun, drive to work in darkness, and later come home to darkness again. Then that cycle repeats, repeats, and repeats. Some days, a tightness develops in my chest, and I swear it's the branches of my lungs squeezing and that there's a virus at the end of one of those tunnels. But more than likely, it's the anxiety I can feel from the patients whose eyes are wide and terrified alone in a hospital room finally feeling the fear of what it might mean to take a last breath. Next morning at 6 a.m., I walk by the room of Victor, the 40-year-old, otherwise healthy male who sits in his hospital bed, curtains drawn to the corridor of busy nurses, lights are off, and there's a window view, but to the side of a brick building and some old ventilation units. He's alone, it's dark, it says that he's agitated in the chart, but I would be too, if my life was on the brink and I was alone with the sound of consistent beeps tracing life's vital signs. The fear he feels is infinitely greater than mine. It's more real, more visceral. But mine is also rooted in uncertainty. And it's surreal to be one of the ones in charge, in his wide and terrified eyes at least, while I report to doctors far more experienced than I am every morning. I'm a new intern, new to the hospital, Never worked in an ICU before. After four years of med school, I may be at the peak of my medical knowledge, but I have very little experience to back it up. I stumbled through his daily information labs, charted in its rises, its peaks, and its valleys. I'm blinded to which experimental treatment each patient is receiving. I scroll through a log of all the medications given in the last 10 days, trying to make sure that today is definitely the last day of his steroids and antivirals. The academic medical community had documented enough studies to show, at that time, some efficacy in our plans. But even still, it all felt like a coin flip's chance in terms of whether the patient in front of me would live or die. I know just enough to understand that on some level, we were in new and uncharted territory. All of our previous studying knowledge and collaboration between epidemiologists, pulmonologists, infectious disease specialists, it gave us a fighter's chance. We were informed, yes, but uncertain nonetheless. The pandemic itself is a time of precariousness, but what we knew for certain is that we could not predict who would come to need a ventilator or who would come off of it. In the second wave that fall into winter, our team's list first rose and then fell with the number of COVID patients in a wave predicted almost down to the week on our pulmonologist calendars. 
At the same time, lots of people doubt this disease, even as our world was turned upside down by it. It was simultaneously the best and the worst time to become a doctor. Half the country treated us like military veterans, saying, thank you for your service, while the other half thought that somehow I was manipulating the charts to get the hospital more money. People on both sides would ask, did they have any pre-existing conditions? As if it would make them feel safer to know that there must be a reason that this person is dying. We need not be reminded that the oldest, the sickest of us, the ones defined in the hospital as hypertensive, smokers, schizophrenic, diabetic, or in other terms, our aunts and uncles, mom and dad, brothers and sisters, neighbors, the old man who held the door open for you the other day. They all deserve to live and to end their lives in dignity, as much as we would all hope for ourselves. And that the disease can spread by how we live, that we can do things to diminish that spread, to keep it from reaching any other life, fragile or firm, should be enough for us to commit to do our part, to support the ones who need us most, or at least to bear witness with humility. Victor died, and others older and more ill than him too. Three and a half million others all over the world. Their deaths were announced in an awful, futile flurry of people running into rooms to perform CPR. We cannot perfectly predict whether anyone will wean off of a ventilator. When you watch that slow decline in oxygen saturation, it ends in an abyss or a black box. And any day that virus can get to the ones that I love, or to me, to eat away at my lungs while I finish my shift and get back to my car, which is no doubt donned with a bright orange parking ticket. I worry because I bore a witness, and I have seen the vital signs. Our patient in 12, Maria, like the names of all my aunts, such a universal name. I had never been in the same room as this Maria as a precaution for us interns to mitigate the spread to other patients. I hoped, in truth, that she would never need me to come into her hospital room because in all likelihood it would mean that she would need much more than my help alone, like in a code. And the day that she was intubated was the day that I thought that she wouldn't make it. If not that night, then in the next few days. And there, lying in her bed, with a tube down her throat and through her lungs, which would inevitably succumb to inflammation, fill with fluid until she could no longer bring oxygen into her body. I was thankful that, even in a moment of chaos, our attending still had the wherewithal to call Maria's daughter, so that Maria could have one more conversation with her daughter before she was intubated. I could already imagine the sounds of the hospital's PA, alerting the team on call to her room number. I could imagine it because I had seen it. The rush of people in scrubs who in a flurry would need to put on masks and gowns, enter and close the door to her negative pressure room to keep the virus inside, divide into roles and make many decisions at once and in synchrony to keep the patient alive. I had seen the hair of a nurse shaking violently as she thrust her hands into the patient's chest to break her ribs to squeeze her heart against her spine in order to keep a flow of oxygen to her brain. But after 10 days of breathing through a ventilator, sedated, half asleep, in and out, teetering but alive, that code never came from Rhea. She stabilized. She weaned off the ventilator and the pressors. She was now oxygenated by much thinner tubes of oxygen, draped there across and underneath her nose, wrapped around her ears. The room had much more space without all the machines. The sun flooded in, filled her room, 
And there she was, there in her chair, sitting up now, eating breakfast, and she beamed at us. She put her hands together, and she raised them to us in thanks. And our own smiles, half surprised but fully genuine, were concealed behind our masks. When I finish my shift, I come home to darkness, and I call for my father, asking if I even miss home anymore. It's hard to explain that my absence means love. It's a mercy that I struggle to show, that I mean to keep him from being isolated in a locked hospital room, isolated by respiratory contact and droplet precautions. <laughs>